Let's pray. Father, this morning our hearts do cry out. Hallelujah. Praise you, O living God. It is because you are alive and well that we gather this day together in your presence that we may fix our eyes upon you, O Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we may seek to love you more completely in our lives and to express that love more fully in the way that we interact with each other, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the regularity of our lives. May the world know that we are your followers in the way that we love one another. We worship you this day and always. And we do it in the name and for the sake and cause of Jesus. And we pray this together. Amen. Amen. I've confessed to you uh, once before, uh, growing up as a child, I remember hearing about uh, the lady uh, Helen Keller and um, hearing a little bit about her life. And uh, as, as I've gotten older and read some about her life, one of the people that have emerged uh, to me as a true hero in life is perhaps her less known teacher named Ann Sullivan. At age six, Helen Keller couldn't speak, she couldn't hear, she couldn't even use a fork to eat. But it was the faithfulness of the teacher, Ann Sullivan, who would take her palm and would finger write words in her hand to teach her how to hear and to read a book. And uh, it was unthinkable, but Helen Keller eventually was accepted into college. She was discouraged by the dean of coming, even though she had been accepted, because the dean of the school thought there was no way that Helen Keller could really succeed, since in that day most of the books that she would need were not translated into Braille. But Ann Sullivan would spend five hours a day taking and handwriting and reading to Helen Keller these books so that Helen Keller could become a college graduate and end up writing books of her own. Ann Sullivan has quickly emerged as one of my great life heroes. And if you're like me, when you hear stories like Ann Sullivan, there's a part of you that wants to be a little bit more like Ann. But we wrestle with a common problem because it's hard for you and I to take our eyes off of ourselves. We wrestle with a desire to promote ourselves to the exclusion of others. We look first to satisfy our own desires and our own needs before being concerned and living out of a concern for others. You've heard the song, can't take my eyes off you. But for many of us, the song really in our hearts is, can't take my eyes off me, right? That's just the difficulty that we live with. It is not difficult uh, to find ourselves pursuing our own ambitions above all else. And if you were with me this morning to take and draw a deep breath through your nose, I invite you to do that now. I know some of you didn't. Let's try again. Do it again. Doing that, it doesn't take long for you and I to begin to smell the intoxicating scent of power, of prestige, of position, and of title, which entice us. 
Perhaps we relate in our own marriages by looking for some sort of leverage over our spouse so that we can regularly exercise control, so that I get to do what I want more often than she is considered. Perhaps in our workplace, we cannot wait for the day when our name is the first one listed on the letterhead. We may volunteer at a local organization while looking for a certain payoff to the investment of our time and our energy, or we give time to the PTA at school and wish that the president would just ask our opinion more often because we want to feel important. Oh, and religious people, religious people can sometimes be the very worst. People in church can become quite skilled at saying one thing, professing one thing, but yet doing something quite different. Jesus would describe these as hypocrites. There are times that we know that we ought to be a certain way, but we're not, so we try to pretty up the outside. We try to project an image of purity or holiness of goodness, but inside, if we look very long or very hard, we know that things are in disorder. When we want to orient our life around me first, that all too easily we become filled with concerns of life that lead us to exclude others while seeking to get more and being treated better than them. We might think that we're improving our life and expanding our life through such accomplishments, but instead we discover eventually that our world shrivels and it becomes smaller. Jesus recognized this problem and he gave us a correction. He, he said that is the way that the world thinks and operates. Self-promotion above all else. Selfish ambition as the first order of life. And Jesus steps into that problem and he says, not so with you. Not so in your Christian life. Not so in your community. Not so in the way that you interact with each other. In the way that you pursue life, not so with you. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, you know, verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They love to exercise this subjugation of others. They lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So what is the solution of self-promotion? Of eyes fixed on myself at the expense of others? What is the solution? Jesus says it's servanthood. Say it with me. Servanthood. Let's hear it again. Servanthood. That is Jesus' solution for this problem. See, Jesus, in this passage in Mark chapter 10, I invite you to turn there. He and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem just before the triumphal entry. There have already been discussions along the way among Jesus' closest 12 followers about who would be and who is the greatest in the kingdom. Who is it that would take that one position of importance or priority, prestige? 
There had been a moment after Jesus had cast a demon out of a child and restores him into health that Jesus would remind them after they had been discussing who would be the greatest. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. A little later, Peter uh, would make a statement that, that he and the others had left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus reminds them again that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In this passage that we'll read in just a minute, we discover that serving others is required for more than simply meeting needs in a church or meeting needs in our community. In fact, we discover that servanthood is something that we need in order to stay grounded in life, in order to not think more highly of myself and ourselves than we should, so that our world We don't mistake thinking that we're expanding our world by self-focus. Servanthood helps keep our world and our vision large and full so that our world doesn't shrink. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. They say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but... To sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, the other disciples, when they heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Wouldn't you? (laughs) I would. If I heard Beth and Glenn over talking to Jesus saying, Hey, Jesus, let us go and be in this particular places. I bet Steve and Stephen and I would be like, hey, wait a minute. Hold on. Jesus calls them together. Mark uses this expression when he's trying to, to give us a sense that here's a really important teaching that Jesus is about to give. He summons them. He says, gather around, guys. And this is what he says. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the request, James and John, in these first couple of verses, verse 35 through 37, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we have this request of you. When you enter into your glory, we want to be one at your right and one at your left. This, in this first century, was were the places, the seats of honor, the places that the honored guest would, would have and occupy, the places of prominence, The seat of power and influence. And that's what James and John 
setting themselves in front and above the other disciples in spite of them, at the exclusion of the others, they make this request of Jesus. And it points us to one of the, the great and oldest sin in all of the scripture, and that is pride. Ever since Adam and Eve thought that they could become like God in the Garden of Eden, we have all, in our own way, been trying to take God's place. You see, we struggle with self-seeking, to which God says, if you want to find your life, you must lose your life. We struggle and wrestle with self-serving, to which God says, if you want to become great, you must become a servant We struggle with promoting ourselves, to which God says you must be the slave of all. Pride at its deepest level is a choice to exclude God and others from their rightful place in our hearts and in our attitudes toward them. You see, pride destroys our ability to love. If at the center of my life there is this self-serving desire that overwhelms the regularity of my life, then how in the world am I able to fulfill the greatest of all commandments? To love God with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love others as myself. Selfish pride like this is not to be an an aspiration in God's kingdom. What does Jesus say? Not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus now has a question for James and John. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The idea of cup in the Old Testament usually symbolizes something that was allotted by God. Sometimes it can refer to something joy-filled and prosperous, but more often the idea of cup in the Old Testament pictures God's judgment and wrath. You see, along this journey with his disciples, Jesus has been increasingly telling these followers of his about his upcoming suffering and death. It was a message that they could hear, but they couldn't really hear. They couldn't quite connect the dots and put the pieces together. What in the world could this mean? When he goes to the cross, he drinks the cup allotted to him. Thereby, Jesus takes God's wrath for sin upon himself. And by asking James and John about drinking the cup, he is telling them that his death is the will of God the Father. James and John certainly would drink a similar cup. Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. You see, John and James would become leaders in the Jerusalem church after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. And along with Peter, they would bear the brunt of the initial religious backlash in the book of Acts. John would become exiled to an island where he would eventually write the book of Revelation. James would be executed by King Herod Agrippa. These brothers would drink the cup of suffering like Jesus would, but to request these places of honor was misguided and selfish enthusiasm. 
You and I aren't too different from them. It's easy for us to want to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, isn't it? But not really want to embrace and to hear the costs that can come with that kingdom. Not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus teaches that true greatness has a surprising source. I want you to think with me. There's, there's a special word that has a special place in Christian history and in biblical thought. It's an eight-letter word. It begins with an H and ends with a Y, and there's a T in the middle. Anybody have any thoughts? Eight-letter word begins with an H and ends with a Y. Pardon? You got it. Jeff, good man. You're a good speller. Humility. H-U-M-I-L-I-T-Y. You know, I grew up both loving and hearing old reports of the boxing culture. I enjoyed um, the, the bravado and stuff growing up of boxers who were getting ready, prepared for the matches, and, and hearing the, the statements that they would throw about. But perhaps there's no subculture in our world, that, at least historically, that captures the idea of the antithesis, at least, of humility. Uh, Muhammad Ali, of course, may be the quintessential uh, anti-humble uh, as far as his expression. You, you'll recognize some of these quotes. He would say, I am the greatest. He would say, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. I read this week, he said uh, once, if you even dream about beating me, you better wake up and apologize. He said once that I am so fast that last night I turned off the light switch in my hotel room and was in bed before the room was dark. That's good, huh? Uh, a well-known uh, boxing promoter, Don King, once said, was quoted in the L.A. Times saying, I never cease to amaze my own self, and I say that humbly. <laughs> I wonder what that would sound like if he said it full of pride. Jesus reminds us of the requirement of humility. For us to walk in the way of Jesus requires H-U-M-I-L-I-T-Y. You see, when the other ten heard about James and John and this request, they, they get upset. And understandably so. Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They love their positions of power. They love to exercise that power. They love to remind people of their position. They love to remind people that they are here and others are somewhere down here. They love to rule over the people. But not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Instead of seeking to be served, we are to be those who seek to serve God by serving others. Why is humility so hard to live in regularly? It's because we must choose humility with God's help. Nearly every time in the scripture when humility is discussed, we are called to humble ourselves. 
It is a choice that we have to seek, and it is an intentional practice that we must enter into. Humility involves a healthy self-forgetfulness. I'll say it again, a healthy self-forgetfulness. That my default position isn't always concerned for myself before my concern for other people. It's not always a concern for my need before I'm concerned about the other's need. To be empowered by God's Spirit is an ability to live in the moment and not be preoccupied with myself. Choosing to elevate others in my thoughts about them, in my interactions with them, and in my willingness to serve them. Humility is being set free to move in a larger world outside of myself, taking my eyes off of me so that I can see the world, a broken world, a needy world, so that I can understand myself more clearly. James and John created discord among the community by their self-promotion. Not so with you. Jesus is the example of servanthood. In verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives his life as an exchange for our sinful life, as an exchange for our desire to walk apart from God. Jesus did so in order to invite you into his life. In the call today, this reminder of servanthood isn't just so that we would think, how am I offering a spiritual gift or giving God a talent or, or offering him some money? The invitation is that you give your whole life to God. Have you given your whole life to God? To be a servant is what it means to be great. To be the slave of all is the place of honor in God's kingdom. So how do we follow Jesus into servanthood? Richard Foster, just a few ideas. He, he says that the desires of our flesh, our sinful nature, are more tamed when we serve others. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh more than serving in hiddenness. A bit like Ann Sullivan, serving behind the scenes. He would say, the flesh whines, W-H-I-N-E-S, whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. It strains and it pulls for honor and recognition. John Ortberg would give a great list of ideas and, and ways to think about how to embrace and enter into a more regular attitude and lifestyle of servanthood. He would describe the idea of embracing our limitations and our weaknesses. Oh, my friends, when we don't always focus on the areas where we're strong, but we allow God to be strong even in the midst of our weaknesses, that's when we know what service is about. It's when weakness meets the power of God so that ministry might come out as this combustible quotient of who we are in God's spirit. For when we are weak, Paul would say, that is when I understand 
the strength of God to work more powerfully than I can through merely the the work of my physical hands or my intellect or my own sense of charisma. God can do so much more when I submit myself willingly to him. Servanthood. Not so with you. Not so with you. You are to be servants. There's the ministry in the church of bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Refusing to always stack people up in comparison to who you are and what you can do. Comparing your abilities to theirs or your willingness to serve versus theirs. But living a life where you accept and receive everybody where they are. And through your example and your acceptance of them, you you hope to guide and, and to be an instructive force in their life through God's help. And then finding actual ways to serve in God's kingdom. Ortberg tells a story of a man who was heading off on a conference, a men's conference, to teach him how to serve his family in particular. And his wife, this particular weekend, had a very important surgery come up, and she asked the man if he would, her husband, if he would be able and willing to watch the kids so that she could go and have the surgery, and he refused because he said, I'm going to this conference because I need to learn how to serve my family. And of course, that's a ridiculous uh, picture. But sometimes it's easier to hear about serving and to agree, yes, I need to live a life of servanthood. It's so easy to hear that and to agree with it. But to actually serve is so much more difficult because it's demanding. It's costly at times. It requires more maybe than I'm willing to give today. It requires unexpected things of me. But when I find myself in the room where I was unexpected, I also discover unexpected things of God. I discover that God can equip me and to prepare me and to empower me to be and to do all that he wants me to do. So that I am formed more and more in Jesus' likeness. So that this community reflects more and more the spirit and the work of Jesus himself. The reality of life inside God's kingdom, inside this church, is everyone living the life of a servant. Both in attitude, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yes, I need to be that way. But also in actuality. Where do you put your name on the list? Where do you engage your life in servanthood? In regular ways. Could you imagine the depth of relationship and intimacy that others might know because you have chosen to regularly love them by serving them? Imagine so many people involved in this church's ministries that there were wait lists to serve. Imagine when the call goes out to serve in a particular ministry, so many hands go up that we have to pull out a waiting list and say, well, thank you for your willingness. We'll, we'll get back to you when a space opens up. Could you imagine, Beth, could you imagine you saying, I'm sorry, there, there are no more seats in the choir loft. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe we'll talk again in January when the new year rolls around. Or, or what if Stephen, uh, when somebody said, Stephen, I'd love to serve in the preschool ministry. And he says, that is so great. I'll put you on the list in six months because it's so full. Stephen, could you imagine a day like that? What if everyone in this church were engaged to the fullness of what God would be calling you 
2. Well, certainly discernment has to go into that. Your interaction with God's Spirit goes into that. It's not responding out of guilt. It's simply saying, yes. Yes, Lord Jesus. It's not going to be that way with me. I'm not going to promote myself. Instead, I'm going to seek ways, more ways, to be a servant to your people, faithfully serving in your kingdom. That's your invitation today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your good grace. We thank you for your good call. We thank you that you interrupt these regular patterns and thoughtful thoughtlessnesses of our lives. Thank you for inserting truth where we are false. Thank you for teaching, guiding, and leading us into your very fullness. May we have and live lives that are servant-hearted. May every person in this fellowship know that they are servant-hearted. Not so with us. Not so here. Because we follow your example. For you are the greatest. But you didn't come to be served. You came to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. May we follow that example by giving our lives to you and to one another. We thank you this day, Lord Jesus. Amen.